give and take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is a return guest, David French. He's a senior writer for National Review, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, an attorney concentrating his practices in constitutional law and the law of armed conflict, and a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. He's the author or co-author of numerous books, including most recently the number one New York Times bestselling Rise of ISIS, A Threat We Can't Ignore. He's a great guy and we had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you David French. David, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Hey, no, it's a pleasure to talk with you. And I mean... You're a conservative and you work for a fairly prominent magazine, The National Review. And so, I mean, I can't imagine, given the political winds today, what we talk about. But I mean, I'm sure we can figure out something. <laughs> but before we get into lots of things I want to bring up, I just want to ask you, why? what was, Tenere, uh, what was the, um, the Mother of Dragons blunder? You just wrote about this. You thought she uh, made a big mistake. She big did. Mis- and it turns out. It turns out you're right. It looks like you're going to be. It looks like you're going to be right. I mean, we don't know. Well, I mean, we'll see. But it looks like, well, for now, she's already made one big mistake. She's made a mistake that's had one big consequence. We're going to see if it'll have more. But her big blunder was when you have a superior military force, don't split it up. This is an old story in military history. Maintain the strength and integrity of your force. When you split up a superior force, that allows an inferior military, an inferior army to achieve local superiority in numbers and defeat you piecemeal. And that's exactly what uh, Euron Greyjoy did on Sunday night when he caught Yara's fleet, smaller fleet, uh, and destroyed it and uh, and took uh, Yara and Ilaria Sand hostage. So that's a defeat. He, she also is sending her unsullied, maybe not all of them, but some of them, to Casterly Rock without the support of a dragon, uh, they could get defeated there as well. And that might leave her in a much weaker position. So she got too cute. She got too fancy and she split a superior force. And I, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. She needed a little shock and awe lesson from the early Bush. <laughs> she needs shock and awe. Well, you know, I mean, she has a more powerful force. I mean, we can go into this uh, as much as you want to, and it really exposed my pure nerdness. Uh, exactly, but, I know, and even your, you know, I, you know, there's so many articles I've been reading, you know, all over the place about Game of Thrones is awful, it's destroying our soul. And here you are, godly voice, intellectual conservatism, one of the successors to William F. Buckley, and you are indulging in what you yourself called an article recently, Calvinism without Christ. <laughs> I mean, look, she has more powerful army than Aegon the Conqueror had when she uh, when he conquered the Seven Kingdoms or six of the Seven Kingdoms. It took a while to bring Dorne to deal. A lot of people don't remember that, but the uh, uh, she has a more powerful military than Aegon ever had. So why not smash Cersei? Uh, shock and awe. Gosh, Cersei. I wish she would smash yeah. Cersei. Yeah, just do it and then be the benevolent queen she wants to be. But you got to win a war first. Yeah, you can play nice later. <laughs> There's always room for a Marshall plan. It works great. Look at Germany now, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I love that phrase, though, you described. You wrote a really great piece about the realism of Game of Thrones and how the noble people often wind up beheaded. And it's it, it's it's such a gritty... I love that Calvinism without Christ phrase. <laughs> but it is... I mean, I mean, it is... 
and I, I mean this in a descriptive is a descriptive compliment. Um, it, 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 to the creators, it's so pagan. I mean, I mean, in the purest sense. I mean, it is. You know, when you're thinking of sort of unenlightened kind of religious sensibility uh, and and the religious spiritual moral values that are just basically human apotheosis. I mean, that's Game of Thrones, and it's beautifully done. But, you know, the thing I like about it is that, you know, in a lot of fantasy fiction, what happens is you have the big bad, you have the plucky underdogs that have no chance of success, but, you know, through the aid of their courage and various magical talismans uh, are able to, you know, vanquish the enemy. That's the Tolkien model, which Tolkien did it, you know, so beautifully, and so many people have done it since. But what I love about Martin is he says, okay, what happens like the month after you free the slaves? You know, like when Daenerys uh, Targaryen came into uh, Slaver's Bay and took Young Kai, Astapor, and Marine, you know, what happens after you, you know, disrupt a, a centuries-old social system, even for good reasons and good purposes? How do you deal with that? How do you handle the aftermath? What happens when you take a brave and honorable stand in a cultural culture that isn't all that honorable? I mean, he, he asks these really good questions they're just different from classic fantasy fiction, sort of more true to life. As I said in my piece about it in, in National Review, it's loosely, and I emphasize loosely, based on the Wars of the Roses, the uh, struggle for English dynastic succession in, in uh, late medieval Renaissance-era England. And that was a brutal, violent, bloody time. And, you know, he's he's pretty darn unflinching in his, his look at human nature and, and his look at the consequences of mistakes. I mean, you know, this is uh, where we, you know, my friends and I will often talk about this entire concept we call foolish honor uh, that is based on the uh, poor Stark family <laughs> and uh, their their unwillingness to temper their honorable nature, at least, you know, at least until now with a little bit of real politic and healthy shrewdness. But uh, yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of gold to mine there if you're willing to take a really close look at the world that our George R.R. R. Martin made. Yeah, and if there is any like Christian undertones, I mean, even not he's completely irreligious, Martin. But uh, I mean, he grew up Catholic, I think. But it's weird that there is, if there's anything, it's Simon used to set Picado, right? That like everybody has capacity for some saintly mo moments. Almost everybody, seriously, very few. But <laughs> but but everybody, like you know, they're they're soaked with sin and brokenness, and you know, the people that you start off seeing as noble can often often have these tragic flaws and some somebody like Jamie Lannister, all of a sudden you see this humanity shine through and it, it's, it, it, it's, it, there's a beauty to that. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things I like about it is that characters change in response to events, just as we do in real life. And we sometimes change in unpredictable ways. Um, you know, one of my favorite characters to watch has been uh, Sansa Stark. I mean, my, my wife just went back and started season one recently, and it was really fascinating to look at Sansa Stark, who's kind of this starry-eyed, girly girl, I can't wait to marry the prince, uh, simplistic, naive, gullible person. And now the biggest concern with Sansa isn't that she's naive and gullible. The biggest concern with Sansa is, is she a little miniature Cersei <laughs> at this point? Um, and then, you know, the Jamie Lannister story arc. I mean, this is a guy who was almost cartoonishly villainous at the start of the series. And at this point now, 
maybe the last conscience in the uh, in the uh, red keep. So yeah, 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 yeah. So we'll see. It's interesting. I mean, I wonder if both in church and state today, like that, we've lost the capacity for Simo Eusebius. We can't see people as sinners and saints. We only see sinners or saints. Well, that's why I said Calvinism without Christ, because every good Calvinist knows that the T in tulip is total depravity, <laughs> which which doesn't mean that we're all completely and totally depraved. It means that every part of us is touched by the fall in some way, and. And so, you know, a good Calvinist should be very well acquainted with the notion that, uh, you know, that that you're not looking at a world and seeing sinners and saints in that sense. You're looking at a world that is full of fallen and broken people and including ourselves, that we are broken, including, you know, all aspects of our personality, but for sanctification and justification that comes through Christ. But for that, I mean, we're we're just completely screwed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to use a theological term. I want to ask you about some political stuff, but before that, can I ask you, like, I mean, you're a Presbyterian Christian and are are not shy about your own religious convictions. What? Who do you read theologically today? Like, who is, who is, who is kind of uh, shaping your theological imagination? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have as much time for good theological reading as I would like to have. Um, a lot of the real the ills of statecraft and politics. I just reading too much about Trump, man. It's terrible. <laughs> but no, the uh, um, I would say you know I, after law school, you know I really read and uh, during and after law school, I really deeply read and explored you know a lot of the classics and um, you know and but as of now, I'm kind of much more sort of into just the. Uh, some you know more popular type reading, but my favorite website as a as a reformed Christian is the Gospel Coalition. I have consistently found that the Gospel Coalition has some of the best stuff out there, the most thoughtful stuff out there. I'm also a loyal First Things reader. Um, you know, outstanding content at First Things. Um, but sad to say, I can't remember the last time I purchased a theological treatise and read it. Can I make a recommendation? Sure. Tomas Halik. Uh, he's a he won the Templeton Prize a couple of years ago, and he's a Catholic priest who became a priest in the underground seminary in Czechoslovakia because he knew Havel, and so that man he was blacklisted from even the kind of bullshit seminary where like you know the state controlled. He couldn't even get into that one, and so he was a psychoanalyst and an underground priest. Developed this relationship with John Paul, hmm. and now is a professor and a priest. He's going to come on the podcast, but he was so busy around Easter. He baptized 34 adults oh, wow. um, on Easter. And he's just his, he's a parish priest and a professor. And he's written, uh, his three books in English are Night of the Confessor, which is about faith. Um, uh, there's a book called Patience with God, the parable of Zacchaeus, reflects on Zacchaeus. And then his, his last one on love is called I Want You to Be, uh, On the God of Love. And I mean, this guy's like... Soaked in Augustine and the tradition, yet also he's so post-Christian because of Czechoslovakia. Like he's great at thinking through what Christianity means in a post-Christian culture. Like, mm-hmm. it's just very interesting. So I, I cannot tell enough people about Halik. Just, <laughs> yeah, great. Well, good. Um, shoot me, shoot me the uh, spelling of his name and uh, via email, and I'll check it out. I will. Now, let me say something, a couple of things. Getting to your expertise here, what people you don't want Jeff Sessions to resign. Despite the fact that you could lose your Toyota Tundra. (laughs) 
Yes. Despite this the- is virtue. This sounds like stark <laughs> noble virtue that you might need to back off of. Now explain that connection to, to our listeners. Yeah. So uh, I wrote a piece last week uh, where I was pretty strongly criticizing uh, Attorney General Sessions' decision to expand civil asset forfeiture. Uh, the Obama administration had curtailed an aspect of se- uh, federal civil asset forfeiture. Session- Sessions was opening it back up again. And I, I wrote a piece for people who-, who didn't really know what civil asset forfeiture was, and I'm trying to explain why it was bad. And the vehicle, literally, <laughs> I used to explain it through was my own truck, what could happen to my own truck. And, uh, and it's this, this law enforcement practice that essentially says, okay, let's suppose I believe you might be doing something criminal, but I don't believe I can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. But what I can do is if I have probable cause, I can seize the property that I believe you are using in connection with criminal activity. And I can seize that property and I can hold on to it even if, and, and just by proving with a preponderance of the evidence, not a proof beyond a reasonable doubt, that the, that the property was used in criminal activity. And look, if you don't have the money and the resources to challenge my seizure, I may just basically get it by default. And, and it's, a, it's a civil asset forfeiture is something that an awful lot of Americans don't, do, don't know much about because it's not something that sort of falls upon all social classes of Americans. It disproportionately hits poorer Americans. Um, but as of right now, the, the government confiscates from citizens through civil asset forfeiture more property than burglars steal from Americans. So, <laughs> which is a, a mind-blowing thing. And so what I was trying to say is, look, I have no problem at all with taking the ill-gotten gains from criminals. But use a criminal procedure to do it. Uh, don't lower the burdens of proof. Don't make it more difficult for the poor and disadvantaged. Uh, let's just use normal criminal law to go after criminals. The civil asset forfeiture, it's a boondoggle. Uh, it's subject to abuse. And there's a major conflict of interest at the heart of it. I mean, Yeah, because you mentioned it oftentimes underwrites like local law enforcement like upgrades and stuff like that. Like, yeah. Hey. Let's get a better espresso machine. Yeah. Yeah. We use French's Tundra. We can yeah. get better vests. We can hire a better looking secretary. We can get a new espresso machine. All on, all on French's Tundra. All on my Tundra. Yeah. And, and the, I basically mapped out a scenario where you, I could lose my truck. And it's based on, you know, a kind of a, a kaleidoscope of real life cases. Imagine, because I loan my truck. If, if you own a pickup truck, you end up loaning it out all the time because people need to carry a couch somewhere. It's a very Christian. It's a very Christian vehicle to buy. Exactly. If you want to serve your community, buy a pickup truck. And so I loan it out all the time. Let's say, let's suppose I loan it out to somebody who answers a Craigslist ad and they're wanting to buy a, a sofa. So they're driving through an unfamiliar neighborhood slowly looking for a house. They've got a little wad of cash in their hand because they're going to, you know, pay cash for the sofa. And they get pulled over because they're driving suspiciously in a known open-air drug market. And so the cops pull them over, and then they notice they have all this cash. What are you doing with this cash? Well, I'm buying a sofa. Well, the police officer doesn't believe you, so he brings in a dog, a drug-sniffing dog, and he sniffs the money. And the money, there's a hit for cocaine residue. The dog smells cocaine residue, which I bring up that example because most money in the U.S. has cocaine residue on it. And so... 
you're driving the suspicious way in a neighborhood with a pile of, a drug known drug neighborhood with a pile of cash, drug alerts for uh, a drug dog alerts for cocaine residue. Right there is probable cause to immediately seize the vehicle, immediately seize all the cash, and also for a bonus, go ahead and seize the cell phone. Now, as all of it plays out, the, the police department may not have enough evidence to actually prosecute you for a crime, but they've already got my stuff. They've already got my truck. They've got my friend's cash, my friend's phone. And then what they do is they file a lawsuit against the vehicle. <laughs> so you have these cases like it would be... And unless your vehicle is kit from Night Rider. Yeah. Your truck's in trouble. Yeah, I know. And so you literally will have something that will say United States of America versus 2016 Slate Gray Toyota Tundra. Okay. Uh, and so then I have to go into court and to defend, or if I want to assert what's called an innocent owner defense, uh, prove that I'm an innocent owner, I bear the burden of proving that I'm an innocent owner to keep my own truck. So it, it really is a messed up system. And, and it's one that a lot of people on the left and the right are rightly upset about, and hopefully it's right for, for some legislative reform. And and uh, there's some signs that at least one justice on the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, is just about fed up with it all. And he doesn't speak very often, so <laughs> in the uh, in the in the proceedings, like he asked like a second question in like forever, like it was last year. Yeah, yeah. Well, he lets his pen do the talking, and his uh, I, I love it. Yeah, he he wrote a, a concurrence from a denial of certiorari uh, that was a stinging indictment of current civil asset forfeiture law. And I thought it was very, very interesting and persuasive. No, but yet, yet, despite Sessions overreaching, you <laughs> wrote recently, I think you wrote this, this is just like... Today. Did you write this today? Yeah. I just saw it, yeah. Now you think, you're asking, you're telling Jeff, don't resign. No. no we don't want Rudy. We do not want Rudy. <laughs> well, I think Rudy's actually pulled his own name out of the hat. I mean, because, or pulled his own name from contention, because right now... Who's going to want that job? Yeah. I mean, look, so. Yeah, I, like David Brooks says, like, like, right. Like Trump's like an anti-mentor. He makes <laughs> everyone's life worse. Like he just kind of like brings them down. Well, his loyalty is you're for me and I'm for me. I mean, that's his loyalty. So, so. Anyway. But Scaramucci is perfect, right? For this guy. Cause oh. he's like the North Korean. My like, I've seen Trump, you know, throw a football through a tire. I saw him sink foul shots. With a top coat on, he drops three foot putts. I mean, it's like <laughs> this is the kind of stuff they do in North Korea that the leader shot eighteen holes in ones. I mean, like it's just, it's just bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I think he's the perfect press secretary or communications director for Trump because that I, it's hard for me to see him disagreeing with Trump, which uh, Trump's not a, not all about that. Yeah, I mean, look what Jeff Sessions did. So when the Russia controversy began to fully emerge early in his tenure. As attorney general, he did the right thing. He recused himself from consideration of this controversy or consideration from the legal matters arising from this controversy. That was the right thing to do. That was the respectable thing to do. That's a thing that gives the American people confidence that a person who wasn't directly invested in Donald Trump's campaign is going to be taking a look at this really critical issue. Um, and moreover, I may disagree with Jeff Sessions on civil asset forfeiture or this or that policy, but I think he's a man of integrity, a man who respects the rule of law, who follows the rule of law. And here he did something that was exactly right. He recused after Trump fired uh, James Comey, then misled the American people about the reason. He kind of left the deputy attorney general with no real option but to appoint a special counsel. Well, that 
ticked off Trump. And so what he's basically doing now is let's just get down to the brass tacks of it. He's wanting to change out his attorney general so they can have one of his guys really in charge of the Russia investigation. And that is a threat. That's that's a threat to the rule of law. It's a threat to the fair administration of justice. It stands, creates a chance of throwing the entire Department of Justice into uh, chaos and disarray as, as, as it would be, as it would have uh, a cloud hanging over it while they're looking for a new attorney general. Who would take the job? Who would the Senate confirm? Um, you know, this kind of, and it's all because Trump wants an attorney general who will assert control the way he wants him to assert control over the Russia investigation. And so what I say is essentially to Attorney General Sessions is, for the sake of the country, don't step down unless Trump fires you. Because right now, Attorney General Sessions is a firewall against the excessive politicization of the Department of Justice, the excessive politicization of the uh, of the uh, Russia investigation. He's a firewall that's protecting the Department of Justice while it does and fulfills its incredibly critical constitutional function. Um, and the instant he resigns, if he was to resign, is the instant a lot of these things are thrown into doubt. And so, uh, you know, it's basically, look, for the sake of the country, of course the president has the right to fire Sessions. He, he serves at the president, president's pleasure. But Sessions doesn't have to resign because Trump tweets mean things at him. Uh, if Trump's going to do it, he's got to step up, man up, and do it and absorb the consequences. And Sessions shouldn't protect him from those consequences. And so far... You know, anything could change while we're recording this podcast. I mean, you know, the news cycles, the way Let me they go are. to Twitter and check what's happening. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Like, literally, as I was talking, this could have changed. But, you know, so far, it looks like uh, Sessions is staying, uh, uh, you know, he's circling the wagons. He's staying there in Department of Justice. And he's essentially telling the president, if you want me gone, you're going to have to fire me. I'm not going to make it easy for you, which I think is the exact right thing to do. I want to take a quick break from my conversation with David French, which we'll return to in just a moment, to thank a few of you, my sponsors, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan Morseberger, and Josh Redder. Thank you all for being my Patreon sponsors. If you want to sponsor this podcast and help keep this content that you enjoy coming out, please just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. And there you can find information about how to give. If you give just five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on this podcast and help develop some future podcast projects that will be unfolding in the future. Thanks again to my sponsors. And please, if you like this podcast, consider becoming a Patreon sponsor. And now back to my conversation with David French. At what point did the Republican leadership just say, hey, look, we don't have much, you know, the presidency's 18 months, right? Because then you're running, then it's midterms, nobody's got time to really deal with you, and then you're running again, right? So really, you've got 18 months to get something done. Like, um, at what point do they just say, look, let's roll the dice with President Pence? <laughs> well, I think we're a long way away from that. I mean, you know, look, uh, the question right now is how much is the GOP leadership going to sort of going to carry Trump's water on these, you know, on these, on the, on the Russia controversy, for example. And I'll tell you when, at least in the Senate, things will turn a lot more frosty towards Trump is if he fires Jeff Sessions. <laughs> because the fact of the matter is a lot of these GOP senators have known Jeff Sessions for years and like him and respect him. They've been his colleague for years. And they also know that Sessions was Trump's earliest supporter. So if Trump treats his best friends like this, or his best friends of in, in sort of the GOP establishment like this, 
Um, who can trust him? Who can trust a word that he says? I mean, his loyalty runs just one way. So already you're seeing a lot of statements from GOP senators in support of Sessions. Now, the interesting thing will be what happens if he fires Sessions and then sort of begins the, the process of trying to get rid of the special counsel. I think you're going to maybe, maybe, I can't say this for sure, but maybe you might begin to see some real GOP defections that are saying, Trump, you you know, Mr. President, you've got to get your house in order or, you know, you're risking your presidency. Uh, but, you know, I think there's a there's a lot of Democrats who are saying, oh, if X happens, an impeachment will happen or if Y happens. We're we're so far from that right now. Um, you would have to have major formal official GOP defections in the House, staggering level of GOP defections in the Senate. You would have to have the specific impeachable offense. Um, you know, right now it's about holding the president accountable. Right now it's about trying to make sure that the, the president doesn't abuse his power um, any more than he already has. And uh, I, I think any talk of impeachment is pretty premature. But you know, it's interesting. What do you get for carrying the water for this guy? Like you, sh- like the House members get strong armed into passing a bill that's so unpopular. <laughs> And then he calls it mean. And then yesterday, this thing that interrupted, I was in a doctor's office yesterday and it was Family Feud was on and it got preempted, you know, for the Trump's tongue lashing about the all these cases of people that under Obamacare, right, you know, uh, this happened and spina bifida and this. Now, of course, this is because Obamacare still deals with private insurance companies and this is going to happen. The GOP bill is not going to change your dealing with private insurance companies. Insurance companies screw people. That's how you increase profits, screwing people, right? Like, um, And then he just says the, the Republicans didn't do it. The Republicans could have done it. They didn't. I'm like, dude, wait, you're a Republican, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, you know, look, his role in all the health in the healthcare stuff has been, just been a farce from the beginning. He doesn't have the vision for it in any way, shape, or form. He doesn't understand the issue in any way, shape, or form. All he wants is something on his desk to sign. I mean, let's just put it bluntly. He just wants something on his desk to sign. The real issue with the the real challenge on healthcare reform isn't because he is abdicating leadership. He's He has no vision for it. He has no plan that he's pushing through. So it, Who knew it could be so complicated? <laughs> well... So it depends on a GOP majority, particularly in the Senate, that has real differences. I mean, you know, the, the a lot of people just say, well, the GOP is monolithically right wing. It's not. Uh, there are real differences of opinion in the Republican caucus about what American health care should look like. And so that makes it all the more important to have presidential leadership. In the absence of presidential leadership, well, you know, where's the consensus going to come from? So, you know, we're kind of limping along right now. And if I had to bet where we end up, I would say either Obamacare stays relatively intact or to the extent that it changes, it's going to be sort of some version of voluntary Obamacare. In other words, um, Obamacare exists, but the individual mandate goes away, um, which makes you know Obamacare more financially untenable. But at the same time, um, you know, retain some of the more popular elements. I mean, who knows at this point, but but some sort of overhaul, complete repeal of Obamacare, replacement with entire, something entirely different. You know, things can change, but looks to be more or less off the table right now. 
Now, when Hillary Clinton tried a pretty left of center approach when she was first lady and Bill Clinton kind of delegated some of the health care stuff, was it like this was well, Obamacare, Romney Care, the Affordable Care Act, this kind of stuff. Wasn't the Heritage Foundation like the generator of this as the alternative? Like like this kind of like, you know, some kind of thing where that where people had to go into private insurance markets and we did this kind of thing like. That was the center-right option, right? Like, no, center- that's a little overblown. So, yeah, Heritage Foundation did talk about an individual mandate, and that was uh, the core, uh, a, a core aspect of, of Romney care in Massachusetts. But there's a big, big difference between saying, hey, this is something we should try in a state, and then saying, well, this is what we need for all states, uh, which is one of the big conservative critiques of a lot of federal reform efforts in Healthcare is that you take uh, something that you know works relatively okay in Massachusetts, which had a low rate of uninsured to begin with, a high rate of um, a high degree of of um, a personal wealth relative to other states, and had some federal windfall monies that it could spend. So you had this unique environment in Massachusetts where you could run this uh, you know this Romney Care experiment, and then to say, well. That means the individual mandate is the conservative solution to healthcare problems um, nationwide. I think is it's an unfair assessment. I mean, Arkansas or California are very different states from Massachusetts when it comes to uh, the capacity of the place to uh, cover the uninsured. When it comes to the number of uninsured, uh, when it comes to the fi- overall financial health of the of the state, uh, so. That, that was my big problem. I'm, I was fine with Romney Care as a Massachusetts solution. But even if you look at my state of Tennessee, uh, insuring everybody is a much more difficult proposition, a much costlier proposition than it is when you have a much lower rate of uninsured folks. But I, don't, I mean, most of the industrialized world, right, has some form of universal coverage approach that everybody, I mean, like it's now again, some people, there are some versions that used you know, some countries that use insurance companies, but most of them, right, are, are more like utilities. I mean, they're, they're, they're public trust or utility things, but like, you know, some of it's just straight out government, single payer, and everybody seems to get overall better outcomes, right? Like, I mean, we don't get, we don't get great outcomes. And it seems like it, what, like what the GOP one seems to want to do right now is go further away from what seems to work better in most of the industrialized world in places like Western Europe. I mean, like, is that so what? So is that like, is the conservative approach like, hey, they've got it really wrong. And if we really go way more free market, we'll get better outcomes. Well, so we there's three things we have to parse out here. There's health care, there's health insurance and there's health. OK, so to say that's for example, maybe, and I'm just pulling this off the top of my head, that the French maybe have longer life expectancies than, say, Americans, doesn't mean that necessarily the French have better health care than Americans. Because, for example, if you're obese and smoking, you could have the best the Mayo Clinic has to offer in health care, and your health outcome would be worse than somebody who has say, the benefits of a normal regional hospital, but they stay fit and they don't smoke in the aggregate. So what we have in the United States when it comes to our health outcomes is we have an off a huge, huge problem. 
of personal behavior. How do we know this? Well, for example, um, Obamacare, in spite of the fact that Obamacare was implemented and that the health insurance, uh, the, the number of Americans who received health insurance increased quite a bit, in 2015, the American life expectancy declined. So American life expectancy declined even though more people had health insurance. So that means there's not a straight line between people living longer and having health insurance or people living longer and having access to quality health care. Why did it decline? We had opioid overdoses. We had more deaths due to alcohol. We had more suicides. Um, We had all of these things, these deaths of despair that a lot of people are looking at. They don't care how many people you cover um, or how how quick access you're going to get to emergency rooms. If we don't get a handle on those kinds of lifestyle despair, anxiety issues, you're going to continue to have worse outcomes than, say, France, for example. So a lot of that is um, a very imperfect comparison. Um, Now, what people don't, uh, and, and again, we're talking about healthcare versus health insurance. In the United States, for decades now, we've had access to universal health care. If there was a, a hospital receiving federal funds, they had to take patients who came into the emergency room. They couldn't ha- uh, take them away. They couldn't right, turn them away. And if they can't pay, we all pay. I mean, we right. effectively pay. Right. And we pay very high costs because, you know, the ER. I mean, my wife is a nurse practitioner. Right. She used to work in the ER, and now she works in neurology. But I should say comprehensive urological specialists in Langhorne, Pennsylvania. They like the plug whenever I mention her. Uh, but I mean, you know, and she would say you, you, it's passed on to the rest of us, right? Yeah. So that, so, so that's kind of like the ultimate form of um, government subsidy. <laughs> well, as is, you know, insurance is, spread, is cost spreading, isn't it? I mean, so, you know, that, that's, that's the question therefore isn't okay. Well, uh, if you're not for this particular form of universal health coverage, health care, I mean, health insurance coverage, that you're against people receiving health care, as with all of these things, you're getting into massively important questions of cost, access, and quality. And one of my colleagues at National Review said it very well. He said, between universality, um, quality, and cost, pick two. Because in a nation of 320 million people, you're never going to implement a, a, a a comprehensive system that says you're going to have a universal, high-quality, low-cost healthcare, And everyone who's running around out there uh, promising that is just flat-out lying to you. You're going to have to pick what you concentrate on. Right. I know. Absolutely. That absolutely. I heard Malcolm, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell said this recently on, on Meet the Press. He said, Canadians decided what we wanted. And a lot of things that Americans want our intention with each other is sometimes mutually exclusive. Right? Let's say they joke, we joke America. We want lots of government services and lower taxes. Yeah. You know, well, like, so so you, you have to choose, right, what you want in a system. I, I completely agree. So, right, that you the, have to, yeah. So that, you know, in America, we've kind of gone towards, um, we've kind of got, gone more towards quality and uh, universality at the expense of cost. So people have the ability to get the highest quality medical care in the world. Um, we have, uh, you know, no emergency room can turn you away. But at the same time, you know, that's going to bring a cost that's often ruinous to people. Um, you know, I, yeah, goodness, my, my son had a football injury last year. And if we didn't have the health insurance that we had uh, between, you know, the emergency room visit, the, the surgery, the rehabilitation. I mean, that would have been a ruinous expense for us, but he received incredibly good care. Some of the best care you'll get in the world. So, 
a lot of times what we end up saying is, okay, how can we keep all the things that we love, which is this this healthcare system that people will fly from Britain to get healthcare in the United States, come from Canada to get healthcare in the United States. How can we preserve that and then just make it available and cheaper for everybody? And and that's where people only do that. People only fly for special things, right? Like that's, I mean, that's the thing. We've got great specialists. We've got some of the wealthy, like some of the best surgeons, some of the best. But I mean, overall, yeah, for you know, like a broken, you know, broken bone set that can happen anywhere. Yeah, uh, but, but yeah, it's but, interesting. You know, Ezra Klein wrote this piece in Vox recently, and he said one of the problems is that most other countries. Uh, he said, you know, people think it's all the insurance market. He said, basically, argued that. Most countries with all sorts of different systems, some, you know, uh, more single payerish, others more hybrid kind of things. What they have in common is, A, the government has a lot more price control over uh, costs from physicians and drug companies. Yeah. So like he said, and he said part of the thing is he says it's easy to argue against things like uh, tort. He's sorry for, for tort uh, reform. It's easy to say. Hey, we got to cap, you know, we got to let people have cheaper drugs. It's really hard to argue that the guy that just saved your mother's life in surgery, he charges too much. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, that's a tougher sell. So some of the also like we just like the, the market kind of explodes prices sometimes that are unsustainable. Right. Well, and you know, the other thing is, so, so there's a couple other things why I'm, I'm often, uh, I'm often, um, skeptical of a lot of these comparisons to other countries, a couple of things. Number one, you just can't compare um, a a nation of, say, 40 million people uh, that has very different customs and uh, culture and lifestyle from Americans with our continent-sized 320 million person uh, nation. I mean, this, we're one of the most populous nations in the world. We have people from every culture we have. Don't American exceptionalists compare it all the time? We're the best. We're bigger and we're the best. <laughs> like if anybody says, "Hey, maybe we're not the best at some things," you're called an apologist, uh, an apologist in the worst sense, not a defender of America, but you apologize for America. So it seems like we do compare a lot. Well, we compare, but some of the comparisons are smart and some are stupid. And and so, <laughs> okay, that's yeah, <laughs> smart I mean, comparison, <laughs> dumb comparison. I like that. Yeah. So if you say, like, you know, for example, a lot of people have, have looked at. Uh, Say Singapore and healthcare. Well, why can't we do Singapore and healthcare in the United States? Well, America's not Singapore. Um, we have to we have to scale up massively, massively with a with a culture and with people who have made lots of different life choices and live in very different ways. And so, you know that that's one of these. You know, I, I will often have people who are who are single payer advocates who will tweet at me. Well, look at this country, and they have X number of dollars spent per patient compared to us, and they have this life expectancy compared to us. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what's the average weight of the person there? What? How many of them are smokers? How many of them drink to excess? And if you then start to compare like for like on health outcomes, things get a lot more a lot more muddy. Uh, and so, and then the other thing is, a lot of other countries who have these systems have benefited greatly from the innovation from the American market. So if, say, Pfizer invents a drug that's incredibly potent and powerful and invents a drug in large part because it can make a big pile of money doing so, well, there's an awful lot of people who are almost like free riders off that American market that, you know, it's, they're not going to uninvent, uh, you know, for other nations, uh, these, these pharmaceuticals. 
But they, they need to have money for R&D. They need, need to have money to absorb risk. They need to have incentives to innovate. And the, cap, you know, the, the market system provides all of those things. Um, so, again, you know, we, we get back to this notion of, okay, quality, universality, uh, and, and expense. Uh, you can't have high-quality, universal, low-cost health care. Uh, and, and so, you know, but that's something that very few politicians of either party are willing to say. They're always going to say, well, absolutely, you could have high-quality, universal, low-cost health care, and here's how you're going to do it. Um, you know, I, I'm waiting for the politician who's really going to clearly say, yeah, it's going to be trade-offs. <laughs> and yeah, that, well, I had Tom Nichols on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, in 2008, Obama and McCain both looked at the factories in the Rust Belt and said, look, these jobs aren't coming back. And he said they had different solutions as to what to do with that. But at least they, they treated American voters like it does. Like, nah, that's a, he's like, you wouldn't have found either candidate saying that. And they're all, oh, we're going to bring all the jobs back. Or, oh, we're going to have these retraining programs of the government. You're not going to feel the, you know, like, yeah, I mean, it would be great if politicians treated voters like adults. Well, it'd be great if voters acted like adults. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but if we could get grownups and grownups in the system. Yeah. There you go. Well, I mean, you know, it, there's just so many incentives uh, to fudge. <laughs> and especially when it comes to healthcare, because, you know, um, jobs are important to people, but their the health, your health is, you know, in many ways for a lot of folks, more important than your job, even though they actually turn out to be pr- pretty linked. Because you can't do it if you're dead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I <laughs> and, and, you know, look, if you've got somebody in your family who's sick, I mean, you think, I don't, I don't care what it costs. Do everything you possibly can do. And so, you know, we, we kind of, and then at the same time, the thought that, wait a minute, you mean one person could receive higher standard of care than another person because one person has more money than another person? Well, then that feels kind of off to people. So then you start to think, well, dude, then do I have a right? What, could, what do I have a right to? Do I have a right to health care more generally? These things are really, really difficult. And and I think that, uh, uh, you know, one, one of the one of the challenges that our political, that our politics has to face is we've got to face up to people and say, there are hard choices that we have to make. And, and we can't lie that we're making those choices. You know, one of my big objections to Obamacare was, is my, the president almost made it sound like, you know, uh, you know, there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and hey, a pony too. I mean, you, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor, your premiums are going to be lower. And none of those things turned out to be true. And everyone who really closely looked at it at the time, knew that it couldn't possibly be true. Um, and so, you know, we were, you were kind of sold the pot of gold and the pony then, and there was no pot of gold and there was no pony. But yeah, at some pretty considerable cost, more people got insured. Um, so now we're, we're looking at a, a, a system where a lot of costs are higher than we thought, but more people are insured. So what do we do about that? And, and that's a tough, what? tough question. Why couldn't we just have like a system that was some sort of single payer, minimal, like something that was like basics are covered and then you, and then supplemented by private insurance. So if you have a good employer based program or something, you know, and that's part of the things employers can do to, to incentivize, we will give you, we, you know, like my wife did a, when she was at Penn doing her nurse practitioner program, she did a, um, she did a like class in thailand like studying the, yeah. the thai health, which has a pretty good healthcare system i mean it's really impressive in some ways and she said you know they're like if you have supplemental insurance you get the suite when you have heart surgery or whatever like you know it, it, that your family can stay and if you know <laughs> right. like, then you can stay. like if you don't like so 
I mean, it, it's you know why like why couldn't something like that work? Where 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 we we have a you're going to run it, you know. So, uh, and a lot of smart people have proposed something like that that is essentially universal catastrophic care coverage with a high deductible, um, and then private insurance supplements, and then you know maybe some some uh, for you know for people who are truly needy some some uh, state subsidies uh, below that, and you're going to run into some of the same issues because you'll run into the world where the person who can afford the full range is going to have a separate category of care than the person who's going to find that, okay, well, they got the catastrophic care coverage, uh, care covered, but then the day-to-day stuff is really hurting them financially. Um, and now it could be that you say, okay, well, that's, you know, it's, it's an imperfect world. Um, you know, some people are going to just have better benefits because they've got more money. Um, and that, you know, this is how we're resolving these difficult tensions. But I guarantee you, you set that system up. And then the next thing you're going to have is somebody saying, well, then the catastrophic care now has to be more generous because what we've realized is that it's creating these disparate outcomes earlier. And we're going to, yeah, you'd have to go higher than catastrophic care. You'd need basic, you'd need basic medical things, doctor's visits, things like that. I mean, it's interesting that this physician wrote a piece for the a Christian physician for the Gospel Coalition saying that we can't treat healthcare as a commodity as Christians. Because if it's a commodity, then people with more means can get more of it. And then that's actually saying that people have a different level of image of Godness. Some people are worth more. Like life is, you know, if your access to certain forms of care is dependent on your resources, then actually some lives actually are more valuable or do matter more than others. I think that's specious. I mean, you know, the, when you took, when, it came from your site, David, from the, gospel I know, coalition. I know I didn't I tell I, the gospel yeah, coalition. I I'm going to email them. I say, think that's Dave specious. French think this is specious. Yeah. I mean, look, okay. Healthcare is, is something that it's easy to talk about that in, in the most dramatic terms because healthcare decisions are often immediately dramatic. But if you're starting to talk about human flourishing and human thriving and things like that, you know, healthcare is just one aspect of that. Um, you know, we went back to the notion of, we were talking earlier about employment, for example. If you don't have a good job, if your job is unstable, if you um, have an extended period of unemployment, guess what? Your family is like is more likely to fracture. Your health is more likely to go down. Is more likely to decline. Your, I mean, the number of impacts on a human being from extended unemployment are catastrophic. I mean, extended unemployment is one of the worst things that can happen to a human being. I would argue more, far worse than being confronted with a really high emergency room bill. Um, and so are we less saying there's less of an image of God uh, of a person when we're not sort of guaranteeing full employment uh, versus not guaranteeing them health care at a particular cost. Like, you know, I, I, I'm just, that's the, one of the re- big issues I have with this whole notion of positive and negative rights. Um, that when we're starting to get into that you as a human being have a positive right from a government and from a community to a certain array, a certain kind of life, that's when I, that, I have real issues with that. Why don't more conservative politicians talk like you? I mean, I remember I came away from our last podcast conversation so impressed about some of the things you said about why the Reagan tax cuts worked and intact families and addiction and things like this. And, and I feel like it's funny. I had Dan Savage, the sex columnist on a couple episodes before that. And he talked like a conservative about the importance of marriage and 
stability and family structures. Like, why aren't, why can't more conservative, I mean, Ben Sass seems to be doing this a little bit, but why aren't more conservatives good at talking about the importance of traditional values for human flourishing in, in, in a currency that, you know, blue state secular liberals can say, because all these things that blue state citizens mostly live red. That's why you can do, you know what I mean? Like they have yeah. lower divorce rates. They have the entire teacher. It's actually in the red states where people live there. Well, if you go liberal, everybody's going to be pregnant. We go, no, actually that happens more in, in the red states. Now, and some of it is poverty levels and education things. Like, like, like what if, I mean, how do you sell some of the important things, in, in, you know, in, in a rhetorical package that it could have a more widespread appeal? Well, I'll, I'll, I think the short answer to that is too many Americans are looking to political solutions for cultural problems. And so the market has a tendency to get what it asks for. And the market is asking for politicians to provide political solutions. Um, you even see this in the, in the book selling market. I've talked to publishers in the past and you'll talk about complex cultural problems and they go, okay, what's the five point plan? Yeah. You know, what, yeah. How, how are you going to fix? What's the legislation? And, and so politicians aren't pastors, but I think in some ways, some of the better politicians like a Ben Sass are almost making like pastoral type arguments. They're saying, hey, look, I want your vote and I'm going to try to work for the public good when I'm here. But what I do in the Senate is far less important than what you do in your home and far less important than how you raise your kids. And but politicians that's not what people want to hear. <laughs> they want to hear that I can live however I want to live, and yet, and I will not limit my opportunities and choices and options going forward. And and I'm sorry, there's just no system that's going to give you that. And you know, one of the things that you talked about that's interesting is it isn't precisely that blue lives red. Prosperous blue lives red. Right, right, right. Yes. That's what, you know, so prosperous blue America, Silicon Valley, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Boulder, Colorado. You know, you go to these places, they're incredibly lovely places to visit and to, to live if you can stomach the taxes. And and they, they are places where you're seeing intact families, parents who are taking an enormous amount of interest in, the, in their education and well-being of their children. They're staying married through thick and thin, through real adversity. I mean, you're seeing all of these things play out in, in a very sort of a living testimony to the value of these ideals. Um, and yet, you know, the united cultural voice should be towards that, towards the, toward aiming towards that as, you know, the American model. But instead, the united voices often will vote for me and this policy or that policy is going to make you have the opportunities my kids have even if you make different choices from my family. And that, ooh, that's just never going to work. I mean, do you think also we just need more spaces? We're like, I, you know, you and I come from different sides of the of the political spectrum. I mean, we're both Christians and probably a relatively orthodox stripe, but depending on who says what stripe is orthodox. But, but you know, I come away from conversations like this with you or Rusty Reno. I learn a lot. I'm challenged. It's very constructive. I, I, you have me rethink things a lot. I start to, I, I, you know, like it, it, it really, I think like, you know, I was telling my wife after our, our last conversation about some of the things she said about the Reagan tax cuts and other things and, and, and the sort of fertile soil that we don't have. And I, 
like I just feel like there aren't enough spaces where people can get together and talk where you figure out that you have more in common than you probably don't have in common. You know, like we're always human beings will always have disagreements and we'll always have different visions of the good or at least how to even how to get there if we can even agree with the goodest. But yeah, why aren't there more spaces like that? Well, I mean, it's this uh, phenomenon that Tyler Cowen described in his book, The Complacent Class. It's matching. Um, human beings, when, when we were left to our own devices, we tend to seek out and hang out with people who share our interests and our values. Um, and one thing that technology enables us to do is to do that at a scale that we've never really been able to do that before. So, you know, it has a lot of consequences. One of them, is, for example, is um, geographic polarization. The the number of people, the percentage of Americans who live in what are called landslide counties, these are counties that go for one side or the other by 20% or more, is higher than it's been since they've been measuring it. Um, and it's been growing dramatically in the last 25 years. Um, you know, we can wall ourselves off into our own communities in really unprecedented ways. And so um, it's just human nature to want to congregate with people of like mind. It's, you know... Uh, for most people, it's generally more pleasant. It's less There's less potential for conflict. And so the result is not only do we not interact with people who disagree with us all that much, we end up not even liking them without knowing them. I mean, one of the most interesting findings in the Pew Foundation study of polarization in the United States is that polarization in the U.S. has become what they call negative polarization. In other words, I'm a Republican because I dislike Democrats, not because I like Republicans, and I'm a Democrat because I dislike Republicans, not because I like Democrats. And it came, it came out right that people are more now today they they'd be more disturbed if their kid married someone of the opposing political party than a different race. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so guess who's coming to dinner? We have to play it with. Oh my gosh, they're GOP or a Sand or a Sanders. <laughs> You know, supporter. She's a bartender from Williamsburg. And she, you know, she like yeah. That that would be the new movie. Yeah, you'd have. We should reproduce that movie. Right, they, yep. That's what we need to do. The hipster family whose daughter is uh, marrying a guy wearing a MAGA hat. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. just imagine. But the the uh, but yeah, that's right. I mean, and and the thing is, um, the the way through that though, and so I think everyone recognizes that we got a problem. I mean, uh, you know, only the most extreme people on either side say this isn't a problem because um, they're just focused on destroying the other side. But most Americans would say, yeah, this is this kind of division is a problem. Now, here's the here's the challenge, because then they would say, yeah, we need to compromise and you go first. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's sort of we need to be civil and you show me first how you can be civil or you know, we need to not be so focused on social issues, for example. So you need to be less adamant in supporting abortion. You know, so it's always, hey, I see a problem. I'm waiting for you to make the first good faith gesture to fix the problem. And and so one of the one of the things I've written about and I've talked about a lot is that's just never going to work. It's just never going to work to say um, that we have disunity and the and the way to fix disunity is you need to be more like me. Um, rather. Um, we have disunity and we need to create spaces for you to be you and me to me and me to be me is I think a more sustainable notion. And for that to happen, you kind of have to give up the will to power, but you don't have to give up your core convictions about what's right and wrong. And that that's, I think that's more likely to happen than asking people to unify through surrendering deep convictions. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's, I mean, that's right. I think that that's, and, and that's a, you know, a hopeful vision. But I mean, yeah, I think cable news, partisan politics, those things are not conducive to that. So you wrote a piece recently about is Donald Trump shrinking the GOP? Because you're saying, <laughs> look, I know his numbers with the base don't go down, but these statistics don't account for the defectors, the people that are, you know, like that, they don't feel they can be Republicans anymore. You know, it's so there's my question. Who is Trump going to hurt worse, the Republicans or the Democrats? Because I saw Crowdhammer last night on Tucker Carlson. and He said that they're asking about the Democrats. And he said, you know, the Democrats are living off their golden years. And he said they did do some great things like Social Security and Medicare and seniors shouldn't die in bread lines and some some great ideas. And it's like, they're living off of their glory days in some ways. And I wonder if Trump actually makes that worse for Democrats in that you don't have to come up with many ideas. You just have to say where, you know, I, I mean, who is yeah. who could Trump hurt worse, your party or the Democrats? <laughs> <laughs> well, too soon to tell. I mean, look, you know, if I'm a Democrat, I'm sitting around, I'm going, look, he's historically unpopular to beat him. We just have to switch 75,000 votes in four states. Um, we just have to turn, let's even be more precise. We just have to turn out voters in Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and Detroit to the same level that Barack Obama did in 2012, just in those cities. And the Trump victory is reversed. So we don't really have to compromise on our progressive goals. We just have to motive, you know, we just have to mobilize progressives. And then the Trump team says, well, you know, uh, maybe I'm not your first choice, but I'm all that stands between you and these highly motivated progressives who are not compromising one inch on progressive goals. So <clears throat> you're putting voters back into, you know, the, the kind of the binary situation, the, the choice they felt like they had in 2016, where both sides felt it was my imperfect person or ruin. Um, and I fear that we might have that dynamic in 2020. But let me say this, I, I think over the short term, the GOP has the greater risk, um, you know, particularly given that Trump's just flat out erratic. I mean, this isn't the situation where you have a guy with some sort of coherent ideas, although controversial, pursuing them in the public square in a way that might be contentious, but is principled, uh, sort of going with this high stakes gamble that he, his plan for the United States is going to work. He's just getting up in the morning watching Fox and Friends and figuring out what he believes that day. I mean, it's, it, you know, I, there, there is, his guiding ideology is the, the success of Donald Trump. That's his guiding ideology. And so, you know, when, you're, when Republicans are hitched to that, I mean, you know, I, I go, to go back to Jeff Sessions, this should be a really instructive moment for a lot of people because I've heard people say to me, well, you know, one thing you can say about Donald Trump is he's loyal. And I'd laugh at that. <laughs> I'd laugh at that. To Donald Trump? Yeah. He values... I don't know if he's even going to be loyal to Don Jr. <laughs> he's, they say he values loyalty. Well, he values loyalty in the way a mob boss yeah. values loyalty. Yeah, right. Yeah. Shows the mob or ISIS. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. Everybody values that, that's loyalty. That's why he likes strongmen. You notice how comfortable he looks with dictators and stuff like that? And he gets to Western European leaders, you know, like... <laughs> He just he just is not a guy that seems like, you know, George W. Bush. Right. Whatever Democrats came back. There's a man who valued Democratic values, you know, like whether or not Democrats liked his politics. You know, he talked about the important role of this press and power being addictive. And, you know, I just don't think Trump <laughs> like has Democratic values. So, you know, so you're latched to this guy. He's erratic. Chaos follows him wherever he goes. He's such a he's 
He can't even fill his administration right now. He's falling way behind on judicial appointments. Entire areas of the federal government don't have the right person at the helm anymore because the job is just unfilled. And to all those Trumpkins listening who say, well, he's draining the swamp, you're not draining the swamp if the job is unfilled but still exists because the next president comes in and picks a person for that job. Um, so so he's not filling these positions. He's contro- An atmosphere of chaos is surrounding him. Uh, the, the future of health care, even in spite of a Senate vote today, is very, very uncertain. Tax reform is sort of nascent. Nobody really knows what that means. Um, he's done a couple of things that are pretty good from a conservative perspective. Judge Gorsuch is a great nomination. James Mattis is a great nomination, but it's in this but atmosphere anyone, of chaos. Anyone, anyone would have got anyone would have got Gorsuch done. Oh. Right? I mean, I, I mean that was a layout. Yeah. I mean, anybody would have got any Gorsuch. GOP president. Um, so. Um, the short-term danger is, I mean, this guy is just so darn erratic. It's not the same thing as hitching your wagon to a controversial but but principled politician who's pursuing a coherent plan. You're hitching your wagon to a, a personality that is demonstrating that it's volcanically has a volcanic temper, is highly uh, impulsive, and completely self-regarding. And, I mean, the party that's hitched to that is the party that bears the greater risk, ultimately. And, I, and that's not to minimize the, the Democrats' problems. The Democrats have problems, as evidenced by the fact that they don't control a single-branch government right now. But um, in the short and medium term, I think the GOP's got a real issue. Did you know people that work in the administration? A few. Do they call you? Do you talk to them? I mean, do, you, do, you, do you hear what it's like? You know, um, White House? I, not, not the people who are in the immediate orbit of the president. I mean, like, I, the folks who are in the immediate orbit of the president, no, not at all. People who are in in the, um, you know, in some of the major federal agencies. Yeah. Talk to them quite a bit. And and there's a lot of folks out there who are doing good things on a day-to-day basis in this administration. Um, but you know, one of the reasons why there has been such a slow pace in filling positions is that, you know, if you're taught, if you're a person who has a record of past opposition to Trump, you're kind of just toss, you know, you're, you're not going to be considered. So. Unless you're Scaramucci, you're just like, he reminds me every 15 seconds. I, I fall on a sword. I say, yeah. I'm so sorry. I was a neophyte. Yeah. But, you know, uh, so if you're if your pool of people that you're choosing from are people who have not been affiliated with Never Trump, people who have never said anything particularly harsh against him, and who are uh, and who are qualified and who are willing to serve in the administration, it's, you know, you're narrowing that pool an awful lot. And so um, he's just having trouble filling. And I don't think he's being all that energetic about it, to be honest. So yeah, there are some really good people in the larger administration who are trying hard to do some really good things. And I've had email exchanges with some today, for example. But um, as far as, you know, I I would never, ever, ever say that I had any line at all to the inner workings of the administration. Let's just say that uh, Trump's inner circle and the the never Trump wing of the Republican Party (laughs) don't interact a lot yeah. now I, you know the national review right it, i mean it's a really respected magazine i mean you've got the buckley you know imprimatur i mean that tradition i what's it like i mean do do are you on most gop politicians radar do they know who david french is do they call you do you like i mean how much of a sort of political uh, uh this sounds like i'm like asking to stroke your ego or <laughs> whatever but i'm just really curious like I mean, it could, do, do you talk regularly to GOP politicians, people I see on TV and meet the press? I mean, do you know many of them? And 
Do you have personal relationships? I mean, with some, you know, the, the, but my, you know, I'm not one of these guys who is, um, I'm not what you would call, I'm not a political reporter. So I'm not out there running around calling people on Capitol Hill, trying to figure out what's going on next. Um, my interest is more, far more in cultural, legal, um, and I also like being outside of the Beltway. Uh, so I am, you know, I'm following a lot of things beyond just a laser focus on on national politics. So, yeah, you know, Game of Thrones, of course, Star Wars, of course, absolutely, and why not? But. Yeah, I mean, some some do, and I've got a good relationship with some folks who, you know, some folks on Capitol Hill that I really admire and uh, and are trying hard to do good things. And so, yeah, I mean, but I, I would say that's pr- cultivating sort of a Capitol Hill, uh, a series of Capitol Hill relationships. Uh, I want to get to know good people, but that's not, you know, one of the focuses of my life. Are there people too that look to the National Review, like in the GOP? I mean, do you? The, I mean, how much of, do you think? I mean, it seems like Fox News ex- exerts some influence. <laughs> <laughs> we do I mean, too. Rails. Yeah, yeah, we do too. Um, Fox exerts influence. We exert influence. I mean, there there are a lot of sources of influence. Uh, you know, within the GOP broadly, within the conservative movement broadly, and I would say, you know, now I can absolutely brag on national view i don't think there's another publication with more influence than we have um historically and and uh you know going forward i think we're going to be we've been for the last 60 plus years uh the most conservative the most influential conservative intellectual journal and i don't think that's going to change howard stern had this bit where it actually i heard people want to pursue it but he had this idea of you know Fox News, the musical, and, and he, you know, says he's got Rupert Murdoch going. All we need now is a, cons- a commentator who's conservative and slimy. And then uh, Roger says, "Let me introduce you to Bill O'Reilly." <laughs> so when National Review gets a musical bit on Stern, you've arrived. National Review, you know, I mean, people, you know. You could be uh, like David French, never Trump, and then never Trump. That, like, uh, uh, I'm not going to say that that's my definition of arriving. <laughs> all right, you know there there are many. There, there are, yeah, but I mean that 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 does have to feel good though to to work for a publication that you know has has had a legacy and will probably leave one. Oh, absolutely, it's an honor. I mean, it really is, and and you know. Um, and then also, again, I mean, I have colleagues who are just some of the best people you'll ever meet. So it, it's, it's, and, and I, honestly, I wouldn't want to be here any other time. I mean, this is a time where a battles, um, you know, intellectual, ideological, cultural fights are raging on the right. What is the conservative movement going, going to be going forward? It's raging all across the country. And I can't think of any place where I'd rather be to talk about these things and to engage these things than at National Review. So um, yeah, I feel very grateful to be a part of it. It's, it's, a uh, it's been ever since I moved over to national review, um, full time two years ago, as I've told people, I've had more fun than any lawyer should be permitted to have. <laughs> okay. Last question. Does Trump get primary? Yes. Yes. I think if, uh, assuming nothing, you know, assuming president trends continue, let me put it this way. If he's at a 35% or lower pr- approval rating, I, I would be surprised if he wasn't primaried. He's getting close to about thirty-five percent now. But if he if he's looking at if he's looking at a low approval rating, and the Democrats are looking like they're getting their act together and not nominating someone like Hillary Clinton again, 
uh, I would be surprised if he wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, which is entirely possible. Oh, the Democratic Party. <laughs> entirely possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> our politics is dysfunctional uh, across party lines right now. So, but yeah, I, I would not be surprised to see a, a primary challenge. But is it time will tell. I, You know, I don't know about that. I don't know. I don't know who. I don't know who, but it would not. Kasich. That wouldn't surprise me. Kasich wouldn't surprise me. I mean, he's a guy who hung into the bitter end uh, and I think who casts himself as sort of like this super kinder, gentler version of a po- uh, of a politician. So kind and gentle, he was almost irritating to me. <laughs> the hugging, pol- <laughs> the hugging. Pol- I'm not looking for hugs from politicians, but uh, um, that wouldn't shock me if, if he if he challenged, decided to challenge Trump. But I don't know anything. That's just pure rank speculation. David, thanks for spending this big chunk of time with me. And everybody can check out your writing at the Nash Review, NashReview.com. And also listen to the Liberty Files. If you're not listening to it, whatever your political persuasion, I mean, you do some great interviews and some really, I mean, I, I learn a lot. I mean, you bring in some oh, really good wonderful. Yeah, we've had some great guests. I think if you ever want a primer on the possibility of obstruction of justice and the whole Trump investigation, the, uh, the, the podcast that I did with Ken White uh, is just Ken Ken is the best at that. And so that's a great one to listen to. David, thanks so much. Thank you. And come back again soon. Oh, thank you. I'd be happy to. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great check it out spread the love and goodness if you found it here also if you could go please 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 it takes like 60 seconds go to itunes and write a review and give it give a rating to the podcast it really really helps especially as things are getting off the ground and if you want to consider becoming a patreon sponsor you can just go right to the link on the podcast page giveandtake.fireside.fm you can find all the information there And please do check out David French's stuff at nationalreview.com and check his podcast out. You can find it in iTunes or anywhere else you download your podcast. It's called The Liberty Files. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, fare thee well.